ora, I'm Erica Wilkinson, and this is the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. Kia ora, ko Erica Wilkinson tēnei. He konai i pirangi tēnei e pa ana ki ngā Sounds of Science. Every episode, we talk about work being done behind the scenes by Doc's technical experts, scientists, rangers, and the experts in between. I've been looking forward to this one. This episode of the Doc Sounds of Science podcast is all about Kiwi. I'd like to welcome Chris Dodd, Doc Ranger and Biodiversity Lead. Kia ora, Chris. Kia ora, Erica. Ko Chris Dodd. Toko ingwa. Hi, Erica. My name is Chris Dodd. Hello. And do people call you Chris Dodd? Should I? I usually go by Doddy. Call me Doddy. Doddy. Uh, yeah, I've been, been known as that since about six, so. All right. So Dottie has one of the coolest jobs on the planet. He's a Kiwi Ranger, and he works in some of the most beautiful parts of the country. So Dottie, why don't you tell us about your job? So I work for, for Doc as, as Kiwi uh, Tokoeka Kiwi Ranger down here. Uh, I'm based in Tiano, uh, and a large part of my job is based down in Southern Fiordland uh, at a Wet Jacket Arm Peninsula. Cool. And what kind of terrain is that usually? Uh, yeah, it's uh, it can be incredibly rugged. It's it's probably one of the most remote places in New Zealand, uh, and it ranges from from above the tree line, about a thousand meters above above sea level, down to sea level. It's a pretty pretty steep and rugged country, and a lot of that work is kind of subalpine environment. So you've got some yeah really scrubby vegetation, leatherwood in particular is kind of yeah a big battle to to kind of struggle through in that and and are you out in the mountains in the subalpine area every day or is there some desk work as well yeah there's a fair bit of desk work so we're out there around about every every two weeks we get out to to do the field work and we're out there for around about three days is it your favorite bit the field work definitely is yeah yeah that's uh that's kind of even in winter yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a natural person in the office. It's uh, <laughs> I'd rather be out in the in the rain. Not too much rain, but the the joys of bird work really is that you you can't work with uh, with the birds and get them wet uh, as well as yourself. So uh, yeah, I kind of can hide away in the in the office when it's wet and miserable outside, and then get to go out and play in the sunny days. It sounds like you're the perfect kind of person to work at Doc. Now, those with sharp ears will be picking up a decidedly not New Zealand accent. So, where are you from, and what brought you all the way over here? So, yeah, I'm from from Harlow in Essex, in, in England originally, uh, so somewhere between London and Cambridge. For for those of you who don't know England that well, um, and I've worked in in conservation for about 15 years before I came out into New Zealand, uh, mostly working on, on small islands doing seabird work and kind of migratory bird, bird work as well. Uh, a lot of that time was spent up in the, in the Shetlands, which is off the top end of, of Scotland on the way to Norway. Yeah, had a good kind of eight, eight or so years up there. What brought you over here? Um, I've, I've got quite a, quite a long history of, of coming to and fro from, from New Zealand. A lot of my dad's family came out here in, uh, in the fifties and sixties. Uh, and as a kid, I, I came out here with my parents a couple of times to, to visit them. And, uh, yeah, kind of fell in love with the place. So uh, I've been a regular visitor here in, in the Northern Hemisphere uh, winters, uh, a summer in the Northern Hemisphere followed by a summer down here for, for a good few years before I actually moved down here about five years ago brilliant so you've been chasing the sun for years as well yeah yeah nice way to do it 
Um, and you've worked extensively with North Island brown kiwi in, in Taranaki, right? Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so I was, uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, get a kiwi ranger post with Taranaki Kohanga Kiwi at Rodakari, which is uh, a joint project between the Taranaki Kiwi Trust and Rodakari Scenic Reserve. And the reserve itself is, is a kohanga, so a, a kind of a nursery for uh, or for kiwi to grow and uh, and then repopulate the the rest of Taranaki. Uh, so a large part of my my job was to uh, catch birds within the reserve towards the end of the season and and help move them out to areas that were well um, well trapped and well well protected. Uh, so for the past four seasons now, they've been uh, moving birds out to, to the main monga, uh, also the Kaitaki Ranges and another site uh, just out of sight of Votokari um, uh, called the Totoa Block, a privately owned site uh, run by a f- um, forest and bird. Brilliant. So it sounds like you're you were running around at kind of a kiwi crash. Uh, yeah, well, of, of sorts. It's it's slightly different to the to a kiwi crash, whereas we we kind of leave the birds to do it. They they stay in there. The young chicks kind of grow up to to adults or sub adults, and once they're once they're large enough, uh, yeah, we'll kind of harvest the twenty or thirty birds a season and move those out to to new sites. And the idea with that is because a kiwi needs to get big enough to fight off predators. Is that the idea? Yeah, when they're when they're small, so below one kg, they're really prone to predators. Um, those those pests would be stoats, ferrets as well. Uh, uh, so once they're above that one kg, they they can protect themselves. Uh, so yeah, we give them that fighting chance to start off with, get them get them large enough, and then. Uh, and set them free. Send them on their way. You must have every day as a memorable day when you're working around Kiwi, I imagine. But do you have, does one stand out? Do you have a most memorable day at work at, at Rotokari? It would probably be a week. We had a uh, an incredibly busy uh, week a couple of years ago where we, uh, we decided to remove 50 birds out of the reserve uh it turns out if you if you have kiwi in a in a pest-free environment they do really well and and better than we were possibly expecting so we we had actually more birds in the reserve than we thought we uh thought we would have uh, well over 250 birds at that stage all from a, a founding population of 40 and that was all within six seven years oh it, was, <laughs> it happened really quickly um and just the yeah the pure scale of of moving 50 birds out of there uh we'd go through and catch them originally with with teams of dogs and then and then catch them again once they've had their health screening a couple of weeks later so just an incredibly busy time uh and we also uh our manager uh simon collins passed away just the weekend before so it was quite an emotional time for the team and that was a was a huge effort and we got off caught all 50 birds moved those to the to the new sites to say to the to the total block to to the main monga and the kayatakis so um wow so so you've worked with a few different types of kiwi can you talk us through that yeah so the uh, the north island browns or the western north island browns over at uh, at taranaki um down here we have the the southern fjordland uh tokoweka and i did have just have a a week down at Rakiora working on the uh, uh, Rakiora 
uh, Tokoeka down there as well. So Tokoeka are a taonga to Naitahu, and even their name is taonga, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, so Tokoeka literally means weka with a walking stick, which if you if you see them as they, they leave the bow or just pottering around, um, is really quite accurate. They're always probing and they do look like they're just pottering along, kind of using a walking stick. And there are different versions of Tokoeka, is that right? Yeah, so we kind of generally go by four uh, geographically distinct forms of, of Tokoeka. We have uh, the Haast's. Uh, up, up in Haas, uh, north and south, Fjordland, uh, and then Rakio as well. Are all the Tokoeka Kiwi threatened? Uh, yes, they're all in all in trouble. Uh, so uh, the Haas, the south and north Fjordland uh, birds in particular are all, all threatened. Um, and, and there's quite little known about the uh, southern Fjordland Tokoeka as well, which is why uh, our project, we're looking at those, those birds that uh, that group in particular. Now, I've heard you describe these birds with such passion uh, that I felt like I was holding one, but I never have held one, uh, and many New Zealanders haven't. Uh, and the only chance that we get is to like see them on screen or something like that. So, so we want to give our audience a taste of what being up close with a tokoeka is like. So, what does it look like up really close? I think the first thing that always strikes me when you when I've got one in hand is the is the are the legs. Um, they really do look like dinosaur legs. Um, they're they're really scaly. They're huge, uh, big claws on the end of their on the end of their toes as well. And um, the first thing I really noticed with these the the tokoeka compared with the northern birds is that they're so they've got so much down so they actually feel really soft and so much feather they, they obviously need it down here with the the cold weather uh so i'm just yeah just how fluffy they are just still <laughs> surprises me um and as as you go up yeah the um again the, the they're quite big birds down here the the females will be up to getting on for about uh 2.83 kg so they're they're big birds they've got big uh long bills kind of a good 120 mil or so so just yeah they, they just look like nothing else <laughs> no other bird that uh that's around really. that's so cool and does their size make them less speedy are they clumsy um a little bit of both they can move with incredible speed uh <laughs> when they when they want to but they are also incredibly clumsy, uh, especially the chicks. I've seen a couple of uh, nests. I've got a couple of nest recordings this year where where they just the chicks have just been pottering around in front of the, the nest camera, and then suddenly they just trip up and fall over and roll down <laughs> a hill, and they've gone. Um, I've even seen an adult bird just kind of look up into the air and fall on its back and roll over, and then kind of quickly get up and, and run away. Um, so yeah, they are in a very clumsy bird. Oh my gosh! And and um, are the feathers? You say there are so many feathers. Are they given to iwi? Those feathers? Yeah, yeah, they certainly are. We uh, we keep hold of them here at uh, at the dock office for them if uh, if they're ever requested. Okay. Yeah. And what does uh, a tokoeka? What does it smell like? You know, they say kakapo are like uh, honey and kind of tree ish. What's a tokoeka like? I'm gonna I'm gonna use the easy answer and say they smell quite musty, which which every bird kind of you end up saying um, smells quite musty. Um, but it's it's a really strong smell. Yeah, their poo is quite a strong smell of ammonia, really strong. Uh, so once you've got your nose in, you can kind of pick them up in if you're just walking along the track and there's been one go past in the past 
10 minutes, quarter of an hour, you really get a waft. Um, you kind of see why they're so um, prone to being being caught by dogs or or, or stoats or ferrets. Um, if they smell that much, if I can smell them that easily, then a dog's going to pick them up from, from miles away. What would you say is the biggest threat to Kiwi? We've heard about dogs and stoats. Is it both? Is it neither? Is it humans? Uh, it's probably both, to be honest. Uh, certainly in this area, it will be stoats. Um, uh, in a lot of our national parks, we have uh, we have no dogs allowed, so um, that's a, a big help for um, for the kiwi out here. Um, yes, stoats can breed incredibly quickly and uh, and just find those those kiwi chicks um, and also. Other birds, really, any any other native birds, they'll uh, they'll take. Um, dogs can be an issue uh, up uh, in the North Island, especially. Ferrets can be a really big uh, big problem. Uh, they'll also take adult birds, which is um, is a big issue. And stoats are very good hunters, aren't they? they? I've seen footage of you know one jumping into a rock or a nest from miles miles away. That's pretty difficult for our native species would you say yeah they're they're real apex predators and they're just uh, yeah incredible at hunting so they'll um they'll just happily stake out a, a nest until that chick's uh, either hatched or, or big even with some of the uh, the passerines so the the rock wren or uh, totowai robins um they'll uh, wait until like kind of the last day before they fledge and then go in and take them so the the chick's as big as it can possibly be and it's got as much as much meat on it as it, it it's can. that premeditated yeah, yeah oh. they're, they're pretty pretty clever so how often do stoats have young how how big a threat are they stoats can have up to 12 kits in a in a litter so you usually have one litter a year a kit is a a young stoat a baby stoat um and the the most amazing i don't know if amazing is the right word but um most interesting thing uh is that um within within a really short space of those those kids being born uh the the male will go back into that nest impregnate the mum and all of the, the female kits in there as well uh so they're all the moment those stoats leave the uh leave the nest they're ready to reproduce uh, so they can, yeah, they can increase in numbers really rapidly. How how often do kiwi have young? Uh, so the tokoweka down here will have maybe two two attempts a season. Uh, so they'll have uh, one clutch with one egg uh, around about October, uh, and then they might try again in December. Usually, that second one is is if they failed the first time round. So we're we're kind of happy if we've got one chick a year for Wow, that. that doesn't sound like a fair balance uh, of stoats versus kiwis at all. That that brings us back to your wonderful Save Our Iconic Kiwi work in Fiordland. Can you can you tell us a bit about what you're doing? Yeah, so we're monitoring a population of we're monitoring around about uh, twelve males. We, we're monitoring the males because they're the ones that actually sit on the egg, incubate the egg. So we, it gives us a good idea when a when a bird is nesting. And we're catching the the chicks. We put a little tiny transmitter on them, which is about five grams uh, in weight, so really light. Um, and then we we monitor those from from the 
time they've hatched. Hopefully, to the time they get to about one kg and are, are what we call stoat proof, big enough to defend themselves from stoats. Um, certainly, when we have stoats around, they're usually, as I say, they're usually eaten within about the first two weeks. Um, so yeah, my my job is to is to monitor them and just record the survival rates of the chicks. And the main place that you work is uh, in Fiordland in Shy Lake. So why why Shy Lake? So when they when they were looking for a, a good site to start this project, um, they they looked at a number of sites, and and this produced a, a good number of uh, of Southern Fiordland Tokoweka. Um, I mean, it's still still quite a sparse population out there. We've got probably a, a bird every every fifteen twenty hectares, so it's it's still um, quite a sparse population, but uh, it's it's kind of the best best site we we know of and we can get to. So, what predator control is done in Shy Lake? So, for the first three years, we just had a um, a clean slate. There was no predator control at all. We had we monitored thirty four birds, or thirty four chicks in that time, and not a single one of those chicks survived. We had stoats on coming up on the cameras. I think there was something like an eighty percent sightings of stoats on the, on the cam so really big numbers of uh, of pests out there uh we then did our first 1080 drop in 2020 the start of 2020 um and we immediately started seeing positive results so we've got around about 20 percent averaged out on the past past two years survival rate um, in that time. This season, which is the third season since the drop, uh, we've started to see pests coming back and uh, stoats coming back and that that survival rate's crashed again. Uh, we've currently got one surviving chick from this season. Uh, that's from 12 ch- chicks that we've monitored. Those are small results, but they are good results. Achieving a 20% increase in two years might not sound huge, but it is enough to keep the population growing and it's much better than the 0% survival rate uh, for three years before using aerial 1080. So um, how come in Shy Lake you need to use 1080 instead of trapping? Why wouldn't trapping work? The the area is just so vast, so it's big landscape, and it's really rugged terrain. As I say, we have even our smallish site, which is about 1,000 hectares in total, goes from 1,000 metres above sea level down to, down to sea level. Uh, and it's just, it's too vast, it's too steep, the country's too rugged, there's too much thick vegetation, which is just really difficult to get through. So, yeah, going out there, it, it would take three, potentially two weeks even to walk out there. It's, it's such a, a remote part of the country as well. Um, it's just not feasible to, to trap. Wow, that does not sound feasible. It also sounds very difficult to find kiwi chicks in that kind of terrain. So well done, you. <laughs> <laughs> and and how do you talk me through tracking a kiwi? Because that sounds detailed. Yeah, so once we've got uh, the transmitter on for the adult kiwis, it's about a 25 um, gram um, transmitter strapped to their leg. And... Um, and this allows us to follow them by radio telemetry. So you might see the, the aerials... Um, out a fair bit uh, that's attached to a receiver and it just sends us a nice constant beep uh, if it's a bird that's not incubating it will beep at 30 beats a minute um, and it will tell us also tells us quite a little bit of of code so it actually tells us loads of information really it tells us how active it's been 
for the past each day of the past week. Um, it will tell us if it is nesting, uh, when it started nesting. So we get some really useful information from, wow. from that. How, how do you tell which beepers which bird? Uh, so they're all on a different channel. Oh. So we have a, a handy little um, uh, receiver and we just go through channel zero to channel 99, depending on what, what channel the transmitter's wow. on. And what do you do when you find them and do a checkup? What's the, the routine there? So during the during the breeding season, we'll be we'll be checking to see if it's that nice fast forty eight beats a second, uh, forty eight beats a minute, which means it's incubating. Uh, after about 30, 40 days of of the bird being uh, being on a nest, we'll sneak down, put a, a nest camera up by the by the nest burrow, uh, and from there we can we can just check to see if there's any pests coming in. So uh, we may well see stoats. There's a few native birds as well that come in. So we really often see um, Titi Punamu uh, rifleman of late, which is which is really nice to see. There's the occasional sneaky wecker which will come in. Uh, maybe a kia as well will come in and, and say hello and have a little nose and usually try and attack the camera and dismantle the camera. But uh, <laughs> we usually have to. Um, yeah, kind of made sure they're well and truly um, held into place. So, yeah, Kia do like to, to uh, play with the cameras. Um, but yeah, once we've got the cameras up, um, once the once the chick is hatched, usually after about 75 days of incubation, so it's a really long incubation time, about two and a half months, uh, we'll go in and after about five, or the chick will be about five days old, We'll uh, wait for the chick to come out of the nest and uh, and put a, a little tiny transmitter on the chick so we can monitor those. Um, so it keeps us pretty busy over the, the summer. We're monitoring, as I say, 12 males at the moment. We have monitored up to 16 in the past. Wow. So how, how often do you go in to do this monitoring? It sounds like it takes so long to get there. Do you bring a tent to, you know, wait where and check if the chicks, what, how does it work? Um, we go in about once every two weeks. It can be a bit more often. It's really weather dependent. As I say, we're out in Fjordland and uh, we get a fair share of rain out here. Uh, is it one of the wettest places in the world, is it? Um, yeah, we're often just kind of very dependent on the weather and just get in whenever we can, really. But we will often go in for three days, if possible, two nights. Um, We've got it pretty good out there, actually. We've got a nice or two bivvies out there. So we've got, we've even got a heater and, um, yeah, kind of bunk beds uh, and a decent little cooker. So we, you know, we can, uh, um, it's not too bad over the, uh, over the nights. Um, for some of the, for some of the birds further away, we do camp um, and, uh, and just go in and uh, if we're doing a night, a night to catch. It's, I mean, it doesn't sound like the glamping that I would request. Um, but, it, but you must be in a, in a race against um, the weather sometimes. Uh, yeah, definitely. The weather's uh, uh, kind of certainly in the in the spring. You just kind of life revolves around checking the forecasts and and uh, and hoping, keeping your fingers crossed that you get a good little break. Um, it's it's kind of crucial, especially when the chicks are are just hatching and you you need to get in. You may have kind of three or four days to get in while the chicks still hanging around the nest. Um, and if you've got bad weather, then then you you lose a chick. It's it's wandered off and gone to a new place, and uh, you've got no hope of finding it. My colleagues, Belle, Jane, and Lucy, are making this work into a documentary style mini series, and you are in it. So, what was it like being filmed for this? 
Uh, yeah, less painful than <laughs> I thought it was going to be. <laughs> no, it was, it was really good. And again, we had to work around the weather. Um, we had, I think, the first first few days that uh, Bill and Lucy came down, the weather was just atrocious, so we kind of got stuck in uh, Tiarnell for a few days. But once we got out there, um, yeah, it, it went really well. We got uh, we managed to, to come across one of the uh, chicks from, well, sub-adults now from last year, so uh, one of the surviving birds that we're still monitoring, and that was weighed in at about 1.6 kg. So that was really, really nice to see. Good to get that stuff documented. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it's just nice to have some success. I think we even found a found a chick, which uh, you kind of when you're when you're going out, especially with a film crew, you're never kind of sure what's going to happen. Yeah, birds being birds, you might uh, might have all left or um, or be in a completely different place to where you hope they are. Um, so it's always a relief to to get something on film. To be honest, I kind of forgot they were there, for, <laughs> which That's I think perfect. is a good thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it gets very conscious when you've got a, a camera straight in your face. But um, yeah, they just, they're, they're really professional and just get on with their stuff. I kind of felt for them really because it's, uh, I think they were probably carrying more than I was for the for the trip. So lugging that stuff around, especially the the walk back up from Shire Lake to the to where the bivvies are is a good 400-meter climb. And yeah. Um, I, it's not a hill I like, I must admit. So for them to to kind of scramble up there was, uh, yeah, good on them. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to see the behind the scenes stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so you love conservation and it's, you know, very clear how passionate you are about it. Do you ever come across people that aren't so into it and you need like a conservation conversion fact to kind of bring them in? I uh, I have a colleague that whose favourite thing to tell friends is that female pecka or bats time their pregnancy so that it happens with their friends. Uh, that's thanks to Jess Scrimger in episode 18. But do you have a, a conservation conversion fact? Yeah, I have quite a few, to be honest. Um, one one early one would be, especially with, with kiwi, uh, is that they have uh, bone marrow, like, like you and me, but unlike any other bird. Uh, is is a pretty good one. So they're yeah they're so used to or they've been wandering around the ground for so long they've uh, they they've now got bone marrow. Wow, that's, that's quite a good one. Um, one that still blows my mind is a is a black robin being down to one female uh, in their entire population. Um, and now there's about three hundred birds out in the, in the Chathams. Then I've got a few good hee hee facts as well. Is, is this a PG? Is, so, um, yeah, so hee-hee he are the only bird known to mate uh, in a missionary position. How about that one? Face-to-face, yeah, for example. And yes, yeah. So that's one that people don't forget. I've had a few people come back to me with, with that one and remind me that I've, I've said that. Um, and the other one with them, they, uh, the males, um, their gonads swell to large, a larger size than their brain during breeding season wow that's nature is fascinating i know people find it gross i think it's amazing and and what do you tell people that want to get involved with conservation be it he he or kiwi or anything yeah if it's something you're passionate about follow it uh and just keep going i started life in conservation a little bit later i suppose i was about 26 when i had my first job uh, and it was something that i just didn't think was achievable kind of before then um but kind of stuck at it started volunteering at a few places and and realized that actually there are 
jobs and volunteer positions out there and uh, you yeah certainly with the volunteering wise you kind of start doing anything that's out there so so in this country just just get out trapping and helping out um local trusts and things um you, you'll never be rich working in conservation but um it's it's certainly i can't imagine doing anything else it's, it's a passion um, it's, isn't it yeah it's it's a passion and it's incredibly rewarding Dottie, thank you so much for being here and spending your time with us away from trekking up mountains. I realize we've caught you on a day when you're not in the field, so we're very, very happy to to have you here. I love learning about the whole part of the world that you are working in. Um, I feel pretty enamored with all of the Kiwi chicks that you've described. Thank you for being on today. Oh, thank you. It's been, uh, yeah great to be on and uh, natter about uh, kiwi and uh, yeah things i love anytime you can watch the fjordland kiwi diaries exclusively on doc's youtube first episode will be out on the 14th of june thank you for listening i'm your host erica wilkinson and this has been the doc sounds of science podcast this show is available wherever you get your podcasts or you can stream it off our website doc.govt.nz This show is produced by Jane Ramage with editing by Lucy Hollyoak. If you enjoyed this episode, show us some love with a five-star rating.